All right, so Tyler, today I get to give my own case for this season of Bioethics for the People. But before we launch into it, I want to ask you, how do you teach people how to tell stories? In your med school, do you ever talk about storytelling with your students? Yeah, we do a couple of different points in the uh, in the curriculum, or students have the opportunity to do it. So there's a couple of like required sessions where we talk about a big picture narrative, medical humanities, healthcare humanities types of ideas and principles. But in the fourth year, our medical students have the opportunity to take an elective on storytelling. And the way that we, I teach that is to give them a couple of different styles of storytelling. So short stories. Um, we also look at uh, a really interesting format or framework called the 55 word story. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, no. So it's this I, this uh, format, almost like a elongated haiku, uh, where it's a writing exercise where you have to tell a story or, or describe something, and you have to use exactly 55 words, no mm-hmm. more, no less. And it's a really interesting process to watch students or people who haven't um, done this before to to do the wordsmithing and the con- the condensing and the reorganizing in order to hit 55 words exactly. So that's one of the tools we do, uh, we, we use in, in that elective to help people think about words and think about being concise. We also mm-hmm. talk a lot about the the ways in which stories get interpreted and not just interpreted by the person who's listening, but the the filtering and and synthesizing and processing work that happens to the storyteller themselves so all of the information that that goes into your daily life you have to condense and reorganize and and package in a way that makes sense in a in a story or in a narrative and that process is really really complicated but also it includes a lot of issues about bias, a lot of opportunities to talk about what information is is important, but also appropriate to share uh, to physicians or to to patients. Um, yeah, it's it, I I really like storytelling in the the clinical setting. One of my favorite authors, uh, is, physicians who works in this space, is named Jay Baruch. Are you familiar, with Jay? Oh, of course, we all know Jay. Yeah, he. He writes uh, short stories predominantly and, and publishes books. But he, he said once, and I was I was at a, a meeting where he was giving a talk, and he said that as a emergency medicine doc, he spends his whole day going into and out of people's stories. It's just mm-hmm. constant storytelling because he has to distill and absorb uh, so much information so quickly and trying to figure out what's the important information, what's kind of a rabbit hole or red herring that he has to avoid. And then he has to tell a story back to the patient. So Mm. hearing him describe that process, not just as a a brilliant short story writer, but also as a physician was really uh, eye-opening to me. That's really cool. Um, Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll add to that is just a plug for, so my sister Darian has been on the podcast a couple of times and she does workshops with, patients and people with chronic illness where she helps them to narrate stories about their illness by getting them to do art Mm -hmm. with her and create these artist books where she gives them prompts and they create art and then they sort of narrate their story after they've created the art and i've she's done this for some of my students and i've seen her do it with others 
and just the tremendous like opening that creates when you're able to distance yourself a little bit from the story by creating something that's not using words and then putting words on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard so many people say, I've never been able to talk about this before, mm -hmm. but because I made the art first, it was then, it opened something in me to then talk about it. And I thought that it's so lovely. So I think that there's ways in which you can kind of open up those narrative spaces by doing something other than word work first. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Good old Darian. She's the best. She's um, a... Everyone should take one of her workshops. Yeah. She's a good egg. <laughs> she is. Well, so today storytelling and it's sort of people's ability to do that will come up in the case. So get ready for what is it is a sad case, but not quite as devastating as some of the other cases Good. that we've heard. <laughs> Good. Not not quite uh, going to ruin everyone's week. That's right. So get get ready for an interesting, sad, but not devastating case. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, a podcast where we discuss bioethics and all the complex questions related to medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer, and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. And she is the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stone. All right, Devin, this is an exciting episode for us because I get to interview you, or at least you're going to tell me about one of the cases that you think about still. Yeah, I've been thinking about which would be the best case for this, and I came up with one that'll be really curious how you would have handled it, because I'm not sure we did everything right. And I think that there's like some lingering questions. So at the end, don't forget to ask me. I think there's like three big questions I still have about this case that I'll be curious if you have responses to. All right. Well, I um, have full confidence that you did everything correctly, but <laughs> let's get into it. All right, Professor Stahl, tell me about your case. All right. So I'm going to position this case in like three movements or three big ethics questions that came up. <laughs> three. I know. Three I think acts. About it too much, right? Three acts, three acts <laughs> of the play that is this case. Um, and I wasn't involved in each of the stages because this happened over several weeks, but there were kind of a couple of like twists that came up that was like, oh no, what do we do now? Um, as, as often happens with these more complex, longer cases. So the case comes, and Tyler, you'll appreciate this. I just remember, so this was many years ago, but I worked in a place where, um, so anyone could put in a consult in the chart and it would come to us and we would ask, what's your ethics question? Which was always funny because it was never an ethics question. It was always yeah. just some sort of like kind of vague statement. So I believe it came to us from the neurology team as something like case of possible euthanasia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, in my experience, almost without exception, when somebody in the clinical setting starts talking about euthanasia, it's not about euthanasia. It was definitely not about euthanasia. <laughs> but it's a it's a fun buzzword to throw out there to get the ethicists um, and everyone else's heart beating. So. Oh, for sure. So you don't often see that. And I've never worked in a state where euthanasia was allowed. So, 
you know, it's it definitely grabs your attention. Like you're not ignoring this ethics consult. You're right. like, oh no, what's going on here? Yeah. Okay. Well, so, well, so, so j just to just to clarify, euthanasia is mm -hmm. not legal in any state. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, it's well, I've never worked in Canada or the Netherlands. <laughs> right. So, um, all right. So tell us about this case. Okay. So we call and uh, we're talking to neurology. So this is a man in his early 20s, also a red flag for me, right? You don't get a lot of ethics cases with patients this young. Right. So um, he was in a motor vehicle accident. He was a pedestrian who was hit by a car and he suffered a traumatic brain injury. So he's currently in the um, intensive care unit on a ventilator. We're really uncertain about prognosis because of the brain injury. And um, after three or four days, so he's found he doesn't have a wallet. He doesn't have any identifying information. And so we don't know, you know, who his people are. It takes a few days, but our, you know, team is amazing. And they scour social media somehow and they come up with family members. Wow. Okay. They find these family members, which I always just find totally amazing that we can, you know, that these social workers and the case managers are able to sort of find family. So yeah. after a few days, we find family. We find out he has a grandmother that basically raised him and a sister. And we find out from them. And, and you know, the first question is like, why weren't they looking? They weren't looking for him. They didn't know he was in the hospital because they're estranged from him. He left home when he was about 16, and there hasn't been a ton of communication with him in that time. They saw him a couple years ago at a funeral, um, but they know that he is a drug user um, and that he is recurrently homeless. And um, that, that's sort of like their relationship with him. Okay. But they start, what raises a flag for neurology is they start asking about organ donation. And neurology says, whoa, organ donation, we're not there yet, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like the family is, you know, basically thinking he's going to die. And we keep trying to tell them that we're not sure about prognosis and they keep bringing up organ donation. And that's a red flag for us. And so they're thinking about euthanasia is, you know, if we just remove event or allow him to die at this state, at this stage in, in the um, possible recovery, that would feel like we're killing him. Okay. All right. So just to recap, we got a gentleman in early mid twenties who was part of a pedestrian versus motor vehicle accident, which he did not win. <laughs> and he is uh, in the ICU with a traumatic brain injury, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he has a, a documented history of uh, drug use, drug addiction, possibly, and is, uh, has an un uncertain housing situation mm -hmm. and parents or family members have been uh, contacted and they are uh, asking about organ donation which is alarming the neurologists so uh, so does that sound right so far that's right so far so okay. the, the initial question then coming up is um so neurology wants to wait of course, to sort of learn more about recovery. The longer you wait, the more certain you are about recovery. If this had been an anoxic brain injury, if it had been sort of about organ failure, that's really different. But traumatic brain injury on a really young person is recoverable or can be recoverable. 
And neurology is, you know, throwing out these pretty extreme cases where I had a patient very much like this who now is in college and fully recovered and right. So they're thinking about the, those extreme cases where it's possible that somebody like this might fully recover from this injury. And it's too soon to say yet that they won't. They want to give it 12 months. Wow. That's a pretty okay. long yeah. time, right? Like that would be sort of the standard is that you can't really have a firm handle on prognosis until the 12 month mark. And the family's like, nope, that's way too long. Yeah. Way too long. Yeah. We, we wouldn't want to wait that long. He would never have wanted to be in a hospital. He, you know, he, we're sure that he wouldn't want to be here. So we, we're not comfortable with this whole 12 month thing, you know, if, so they're not comfortable with that. And so there's this impasse. Mm -hmm. So would it be killing if they wanted to stop these treatments now? That's the, sort of the first ethics question. Gotcha. So just to just to clarify a little bit, what interventions or what's going on with him? So he, he is he intubated? Is he uh, like what kind of life sustaining treatment is he getting right now? Yeah, I think at this point it is um, just the intubation and with the ventilator. Okay, so he's intubated on a ventilator, doing his breathing for him, um, mm -hmm. and. In these situations where there's a uh, brain injury, the the difference that you're that you're kind of describing is between brain injury because of a lack of oxygen for whatever reason. It could be you know drowning, it could be a cardiac arrest, versus uh, brain injury because of trauma, right? And right. what's interesting to me about these cases often is that one side or the other, when we're kind of facing the, the patient's families versus the healthcare providers, one group tends to lean more heavily on data and predictability and prognosis. Um, mm -hmm. And if it's the case where the the team is like, well, I don't know if we're, we're doing the right thing. I don't know if we should continue. Then um, the family often responds by saying, well, you can't be for sure. Here are all these anecdotal cases of recovery. And um, But it sounds like the opposite is true in this case, that the family's kind of putting up some uh, concern saying, wait a second, we're not quite sure that what you are describing is something, number one, that he would want, and number two, would lead to an acceptable quality of life for him um, at the end of it. And so it's kind of a little bit reversed from most cases that we see, yeah? Yeah, I think that's right. And I and it might be in part because it's just unusual to have such a young patient with such with this kind of injury. Like neurology is not as used to these patients. And they had just happened to have these anecdotal experiences. And so they're just not ready to give up on this patient yet. Or that's how they would describe it. Right. They're not ready to give up on him. Whereas mm -hmm. the family is has a very different orientation toward him. Yeah. This reminds me of a case I had recently, and not to get off track, but uh, similar, but it was a, a, a teenager. So the mother was making decisions for her and she was in a car accident similarly. And the mother's position, she said, if my daughter doesn't recover to 100%, if she is not back to the way she was yesterday, then none of this is appropriate. None of, we want, we want none of this. Right. And so very, uh, you know, similarly troubling types of, um, expectations or, uh, so, okay. So what did you do? So you got this case and then what? All right. So, so this first question, is it killing? Okay. So, I, and, and I had been told not only through this, but also through other care providers that, that neurology was saying this out loud in front of other physicians, we're worried we're killing him. And I, I want to take that really seriously Yeah. because any of our care providers who feel like they're killing a patient, 
you know, whether that's true or not, we need to take that very seriously because nobody wants to feel like they're killing their patient. Right? right. So you need to like definitely attend to that. Um, so we work with them. We get palliative care involved, who's also talking to the patient's family at this point to talk about the differences between allowing to die and killing. Mm -hmm. and, and as part of that conversation, we're really trying to tease out from neurology, like what they think, why they think they need such a long time for prognosis. Because palliative care is not so certain that that's the amount of time that you're gonna need to say anything definitive. You know, maybe there's nothing definitive that can ever be said until they totally recover or don't, but do you really need 12 months to have some idea about possible recovery for this. Yeah. So they're getting pushed on that question. Um, and we're trying to describe the differences between like appropriate amounts, of, like a, there is a kind of appropriate allowing to die and an inappropriate allowing to die. Um, mm -hmm. So if this was something really easily um, treatable, you know, if he had an infection that could be treated with antibiotics and if we didn't treat it, he would die. And the family saying, no, we're really concerned, right? That could be sort of a, a passive way of allowing him to die that would be inappropriate. But this doesn't quite feel like that. This feels like it's a it's a significant injury with significant burdens of hospitalization and medical support. Um, and in which case, we understand the sort of trepidation about taking away those interventions too soon, those life-sustaining interventions too soon. Um, but we also wanna allow room for down the line, this being an option, if we are convinced that that's what he would have wanted. And so we want to come to some idea about how long we would allow this to go on before we would allow the family to make that decision. I think we're all kind of in agreement that three, four days is too soon, but mm -hmm. a year might be way too long. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough bind to be in because often when families are in this situation, particularly when there's kind of a troubled history within the, the relationships that definitive like we went, we need to make a decision we need to um you know kind of know what the plan is know what moving forward looks like uh it is something that families are really interested in and motivated in trying to accomplish but at the same time there has to be some degree of allowing for more information more clinical data more um intervent you know diagnosis to have a clearer picture of the the full prognosis, because it's really hard to make decisions about what somebody's eventual quality of life is going to be, or whether the interventions are appropriate or not, if we don't know what that prognosis is, right? And so it makes perfect sense that the healthcare team would want, you know, some time to get some more information that would inform, better inform uh, a good prognosis, right? Mm -hmm. And I was grateful to have some help from palliative care about looking at that. So there is a, they were able to produce for me a chart that showed, you know, sort of um, the, the rate of accurate prognosis versus time in these kinds of injuries. And of course, the longer you wait, the more accurate the prognosis gets. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty dramatic, that sort of slope um, of how much more accurate it gets with the amount of time. But it, so you have to decide where on that chart you're willing to stop interventions. Yeah. So the, yeah. It, it, that chart doesn't answer the ethics question, but it helps to give some sort of information about appropriate, you know, where you'd sort of make that cutoff. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're in a difficult position and we, you know, I think all agree that like it's too soon right now, but we, we don't want to let this go on indefinitely um, or even that year that that yeah, might be too yeah. long for this family. 
So where where in this are we going to say it's okay for them to make right. that decision? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of movement one. And, and what we come to with the family is that they're willing to wait at least a couple more weeks. And so it buys us some time. So okay. the second big ethics question that comes to us is, are these family members even appropriate decision makers? And you sort of hinted at this, right? So they are the next of kin, but they don't know the patient. So it's hard for, you know, they're going to they're gonna have an uphill battle convincing us that it's appropriate to remove all this stuff sooner rather than later because they don't know the patient very well. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's uh, a, a challenging wrinkle for sure. So appropriate decision makers, um, kind of by definition, it are people who are able to represent or speak on behalf of the patient, right? So someone who's able to make decisions on behalf of somebody else. But part of that assumption built in there is that they actually know the patient. And, mm -hmm. you know, we kind of, def we often default to next of kin or family members or, you know, close uh, intimate acquaintances or relationships. But sometimes those formal relationships, the the legal next of kin, like you said, doesn't often know the patient very well, or even better than kind of a random person pulled off the street. Right. So there's this big question lingering about their appropriateness. And, and this keeps coming up, interestingly, in the case, like, this question about organ donation makes many people on the care team suspicious that this mm. family just wants him to die, that they actually want him to die. And then they are inappropriate decision makers because of this fraught relationship. They don't want to deal with him anymore. It would be better for the entire family that he just die mm. is a concern by the care team or some members of the care team. Yeah. And, and of course, that would be alarming, right? If you you know, had a family member like that who was making decisions with the purpose of, you know, having the patient die because it is a, of some benefit to them um, for whatever kind of benefit that is, that's concerning. Mm -hmm. And so the second question that's coming to us is, you know, should we be allowing them to make decisions? Okay, they're the legal next of kin, but should we be trying a little bit harder um, to find somebody else? Um, and, and the family is telling us they don't know about any of his friends Right, whether he has sort of a romantic partner, because they just don't know him well enough to yeah. know about that. Interesting. So there is really nobody else that we could turn to at this mm -hmm. point. Does the family? Does the family seem to want to be making these decisions? Or are they? Was it your sense that they were doing so reluctantly? Um. So I went to meet with them. So this is, you know, one of those cases in which you probably do want to talk with them, because if you're getting the question, are they appropriate decision makers, you want to meet with them and sort of get a sense of like th that question. Do they even want to be making these decisions? Do they seem to carry malice toward this person? Mm -hmm. Right. So what are they like and, and what is their rationale for kind of making the decisions that they're making? So I do meet with them. They've been at the bedside since they learned about him and his injury okay so they seem for that so that sort of external fact that i hear from other members of the care team they're there so they want to be there and they are devastated right they're hurting mm -hmm. um you know and it's helpful that they're expressing that in a way that seems genuine and that they're expressing it appropriately like you can mm -hmm. imagine that they might be devastated but not expressing that in the right kinds of ways yeah. for me to interpret which is a different kind of question but they seem to genuinely love and care about him. They recognize that they don't know him as well as they could. 
Um, but that I do sort of sense that they, not that they are glad to make decisions, but that they are willing to make decisions um, and they're willing to be there in the suffering. Mm -hmm. um, so they're there and they're willing to make these decisions. Yeah, that's that's helpful um, because mm -hmm. often we see family members who are estranged from the patient who, um, regardless of whether they have like malice or hostility towards the patient, just like don't want to be involved whatsoever. And that's their right too, right? They can recuse themselves or, you know, step away from that role. So I, th I think it's at least helpful when family members are engaged and do recognize that maybe we don't know all of the things that he won, but he's our, you know, he's our son, he's our brother. We we want to be involved. Mm -hmm. Right. It's It both sort of is helpful and makes it more complicated because if they weren't as willing to make decisions, if they were more willing to defer to the care team, then we probably wouldn't have had an ethics case, right? So it, it wouldn't have created conflict, but at the same time, you want them to be involved because we need to know something about him. We need to know, you know, that there's people besides us who are making important decisions. We don't want that to all be on the care team. Right. Um, so when I'm talking to this family, they're saying, you know, we're at, we ask the kind of typical questions like, you know, what did he enjoy? What was he like? And they can only answer these questions both from before he left home and through, they do have some kind of mutual friends that are keeping them abreast of some of his goings on. So they know a little bit about his social life um, through some mutual context, but it's kind of sketchy. But what they're telling us is, you know, he is a person who enjoyed kind of being out and about. He never wanted to be confined. This is part of the reason he left home. So the idea of being uh, sort of hospitalized, institutionalized, even this talk of like rehab, you know, after he leaves the hospital, that's all concerning to them. And they say pretty clearly that their worst fear is that they would put him through all of this and he still wouldn't make a meaningful recovery. You know, they're telling us we it'd be amazing if he fully recovered, but our worst fear is that we do all of this to him and he doesn't recover. And that would be the worst case scenario for us mm -hmm. because of the kind of person we think he was. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that's often a concern when we don't know what the patient would have wanted. Right. So we're forcing them to go through all of these really difficult things. And then we don't even know at the at, at the end of it, even if we're successful through every step of the way, whether it's something they would have wanted or not. And it may be the case that he pulls through and recovers and is able to speak again and is very displeased about what decisions were made right absolutely so and the other thing they're telling us which is concerning to some but actually not so much to me is that um if he got to a point where he could leave the hospital but still need a lot of care they would be unwilling mm -hmm. to take him home to do that okay um, interesting wow okay because um because he created such chaos in their lives when he did live at home Okay. And given sort of the way that they understand he's living his life now, they can't imagine home feeling, even if he was pretty debilitated, they would not feel safe with him in their home. Okay. Um, so that put, puts a wrinkle in this too, because it might, it might very well be the case that he needs to recover somewhere other than a hospital or rehab facility. You know, he needs a lot of care, but he's not appropriate for those institutions. And so somebody needs to be taking care of him. And if a family is unwilling to do that, where will he go? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the burden of continuing his rehab, setting aside the question of whether we think it's appropriate, you know, something he would want to begin with, that burden and that work, um, not just like the physical work, but like the emotional work would have to be, you know, borne by somebody else. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. All right. So how did you address that? Well, so, you know, it was my assessment after spending time with this family that they were appropriate decision makers, that they did not carry a kind of malice toward him, that they knew enough about him to make decisions on his behalf. You know, it wasn't perfect, but it was better than a court-appointed guardian, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So they were appropriate enough and that we should follow their lead when we get to the point where decisions need to be made. And it's looking like when they talk to palliative care, they're becoming more and more convinced that this is not a long-term thing they wanna continue with. That Mm -hmm. at some point, if he does not make any sort of meaningful recovery, that they will want to discontinue treatment. Gotcha. And how long after you were consulted is this now? Have days passed or is it still kind of your first assessment? No, um, many days have passed. Um, So we're now getting into week two of this case, right? So again, the longer we wait, the more accurate the prognosis is going to be still pretty early um, Uh in the course of all this. so, you know, we're a couple weeks in, the family's still willing to wait a little bit longer, but not too much longer. Okay. Yeah, at some point, the, often these situations where somebody's intubated, the the really important decision point for family members is often when the ventilator needs to be transitioned from an endotracheal, so in, into the throat tube, to an in in like a tracheostomy, right? So promote more permanent ventilator. So are you guys approaching that point yet? Yes. So that will be the decision point is when we need to move to that. And what they're telling us is that they don't think they would want that. So, you know, if we get into the point where, so if he were an older, sicker patient, you know, a couple of weeks would be maybe where we need to make that. The medical care team is saying we could probably wait a couple more weeks until we need to make that decision. So everyone's willing to wait that long. Mm-hmm. And the reason that the month. Okay. And yeah. and the reason that they're willing to wait is just like, like you said earlier, to get more information to make a more accurate prognosis. Right. Is there any signs of recovery at all? Right. Gotcha. So, so far, no. Um, and as the week progresses and the attending neurologist switches over, we get a new attending who's like, gosh, the idea that this person with this injury is going to make a full recovery seems pretty impossible. Mm-hmm. Any meaningful recovery, this new neurologist is much less optimistic about that. Okay. So also acknowledges that it's difficult to do a prognosis on a patient this young with this kind of injury, but is less optimistic than the previous neurologist and is more willing to go with the family if what they decide is to remove uh, the vent or extubate and allow him to die. So he, he's more okay with that. Um, so we get to about that month point and basically everyone is in agreement that extubation is appropriate to allow the patient to die. Okay, so the that, decision was, point. sorry. So the decision was made that we're not gonna transition him to, not gonna do a tracheostomy and do a permanent mm-hmm. 
ventilator. Um, and so at this point, we're going to withdraw the ventilator with the understanding that he probably will not be able to breathe on his own. And then, then he will die because of the injuries and his inability to breathe on his own. Right. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. So That's off- what we suspect is that he won't be able to breathe on his own. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes we call that a terminal extubation, right? Or mm-hmm. other times, I think the more, I don't know, the softer language is a, um, oh, what's the term? Extubation without reintubation or, or a compassionate extubation are all different phrases yeah. that I've heard for that process but or we're, we're freeing him from the machines that's one that i've i hear quite a yeah. bit these days that i don't Li- remember li- hearing before yeah. <laughs> liberation from the ventilator i've heard as well right yeah okay yeah okay so we get to this point where okay that that seems reasonable we set a date a few days before that happens so this is movement three act three okay. um a girlfriend comes to the hospital All a girlfriend right. we didn't know existed she claims to be a long-term girlfriend for about five years. They've been a little off again, on again, but live together. Okay. The family didn't know about her because, again, they just don't know much about the patient. Mm-hmm. And she didn't know he was in the hospital in part because it's not unusual for him to leave for a few weeks at a time and come back, given his you know drug use and, and other aspects of his social life. So when she learned... Um, about his hospitalization. She came as soon as she heard. Um, she is less convinced that this is a good idea. You know, so, so she... she I, okay. So she yeah. is indicating that maybe continuing life-prolonging treatment would be something that he would want. Is that what she's saying? Yeah. Well, she's having a hard time articulating that as something he would want, but it's very clear she doesn't want him to die. Okay. And she is, you know, at first it's just sort of oh, a little, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. And that be, kind of ramps up a bit because I think at first she wants to get along with his family. That's, you know, that seems important. But the more it becomes clear that what they're going to want is extubation, the more she gets adamant that that's not what she would want. And she's not convinced that that is what would be best for him. So she's getting a little bit more agitated about this as it becomes more clear that that's where we're headed. Okay. Is she saying, so often in these types of situations, there's a, there's the question about who should be making decisions, right? So the Mm -hmm. act two of your case, and that's one kind of set of questions, but the other set of questions is what decisions should be made and it sounds to me that she's objecting to or at least raising concerns about what decisions are being made is she also making um raising concerns about the family being the decision maker is she saying that she ought to be making decisions well she's not saying that directly but she is implying that they don't know him as well as she does Mm -hmm. um this came up which i it was i think the first time i had sort of understood anything about common law marriage. So not all states have common law marriage, but in states that do, I was surprised to learn that it doesn't require much, but it does require a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like there is a difference between a long-term girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, and a common law marriage. Mm -hmm. And at least in the place I was working at the time, the difference was merely that you had to say that you were married. You had to imply that they were your spouse. 
And if you said that and you had been living together for a certain amount of time like they had, then we actually would have called this person his spouse. If she had oh. just started calling herself his wife, we would have actually allowed her to be the decision maker. Mm, interesting. But she, um, but she didn't. <laughs> she didn't. Interesting. So yeah. I, uh, from in my practice, when anybody asserts common law marriage, I my response is often probably not. <laughs> so the, the requirements mm -hmm. are so specific, but also changed by state and like mm -hmm. kind of this general understanding of what common law marriage is, is often incorrect. Um, so in, in the place that you were practicing at that time, so her just asserting to be the spouse was enough? If they had lived together for a certain amount of time, they had shared sort of a household meeting like bills and, you know, they live together, they share some finances and they call themselves married. Okay. That would have been enough. Okay. But she didn't do that. So she, she doesn't she, kind of become a next of kin for for lack of a better term because of the common law marriage right so you know she might object and we want to keep her involved in conversations because the family's okay with that but at the end of the day his grandmother and sister are the decision makers and they're in harmony with what they want gotcha. so this is a wrinkle but it's not gonna throw everything off the rails just because of her status so it comes to the day we're gonna extubate about an hour before extubation, she comes to the hospital with an MPOA form. Okay, tell a us. Medical power, okay. <laughs> a medical power of attorney. I think where I was practicing, it was a healthcare power of attorney, uh, power of attorney for healthcare. Okay. Um, it gets called different things in different states. But this is the legal document where the patient has designated this person to make their medical decisions. Okay. So, Interesting. <laughs> Convenient, right? Like, why hadn't she mentioned before that she was the power of attorney for healthcare? And when we sort of, so we're a little like, wow, that we didn't know this. She says, you know, it, this is, of course, not the first time he's been hospitalized because of his drug use. We've had to take him to the hospital before. And the last time we took him, which was a couple years ago, they told us that this is a document we should probably have because you know, he will need a decision maker. And so together we filled out this document. And um, so at the end of the day, I'm the decision maker and I don't want to extubate. Wow. Okay. Um, so every, so everything that she was saying makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Except for the fact that he's been in the hospital for an extended period of time. And we are just now hearing about this arrangement. Yes. Right. So we say, okay, can we see it? Can we see the document? And she gives us the document and it's suspicious. Okay. It's, sus it's suspicious because every signature is exactly the same. Every initial is exactly the same as if it were done like on a PDF reader, um. right? So like it's a electronic, It's it looks like an electronic signature. Mm -hmm. You know, the, it's printed out, so it's hard to say that definitively, yeah. but, and it, it's backdated. It, well, it's suspected that it's backdated. Uh -huh. um, so we are suspicious that she just doctored this document. Okay. Wow. Um, and, does, and then, yeah. The, yeah. What? So what do you do with that? <laughs> right. That doesn't happen often, but it does happen sometimes, right? So b before we get into kind of how how to deal with that, why do you think that she would go through the hassle of this? What's her motivation? I, I don't think she wanted him to die. Okay. 
I mean, my best sort of most compassionate read on this is she she didn't want him to die and she knew she didn't have the authority to make that call. And so, and she wanted it. She wanted the power to make that decision. And so this was, she learned that this, this was the way. All right. If we assume that the document's fake, if we assume that it's real, why she would wait so long to produce it is a different question. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you are presented with this document that you have concerns about. There's concerns, right? So, so you can't, we call off the extubation. You, you can't deal with this document in an hour. Right. So right. at least that's the sort of and I, I don't know that I was part of that decision. We had switched off this because this had gone on for so long. We had switched on and off with this case with other ethicists. OK, um, so I'm part of some of these discussions. I'm I'm not part of all of them, but this comes to me like you will not believe what just happened. Um, we had gone through all of this and, and then this just happened. Um, OK, but this is the first I'd ever heard of this. I've never even thought about somebody, you know, forging a document like this. OK, and I don't know what to do. Um, so you can't, I don't, but, but my clear judgment was you can't do anything right now. So mm -hmm. we, we have to call off the extubation. We can't figure this out in an hour. So, you know, let's all look at the document. Let's like, look at the witnesses. Um, so it is witnessed by two people. Um, the social worker just kind of does a Google search and these are real people who live at the real addresses that they claim to live at. There's no phone number, so we can't call them. But at least, you know, that kind of checks out. But I think there's this big question, like, what do you what do you do? You know, it, do you presume that the document's real because it's not our job to verify that it is mm -hmm. or isn't? Right. And that's true. Right. I don't think it is our job to sort of decide whether this is a real document or not. You know, do we go to court with this? That would be a pretty extreme thing to do. But do we do we have to do that? Hmm. So I think we're in this real bind. I mean, I. The resolution we came to, I think, is interesting, but I'd be curious. What do you think you would do, Tyler? So I've seen this before. Um, not a lot, like I said, but every once in a while we'll get documents that are, uh, I, I wouldn't say suspicious, but there are concerns about them. Whether it's, you know, the signatures being suspiciously similar or there's parts that aren't completed kind of appropriately or uh or there's some sort of other conflicting things. I The advice that I give, and, and again, I agree with you that this is not our job to do this interpretation or investigation of the validity of this, is that if we have concerns about whether it's valid or not, those concerns have to be uh, addressed. Like you said, we, we can't, it would be, I think, unwise to go forward with particularly uh, a, a, an intervention or the withdrawal of an intervention that has irreversible consequences until we figure out what the validity of this document would be. But I don't see a lot of other options besides going to court. Um, mm -hmm. Having somebody whose job it is to decide what facts are to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be interested, so was risk management or your legal department involved at this point? Yeah, yeah. And they're also like, a little perplexed uh -huh. and, and they do agree that that could be a route to go i mean sort of the real downside of that is that this patient then lingers in this state because we know that this is going to take a long time mm -hmm. it, potentially months to go down that route and given what we've already decided that's putting a real burden on the family and the patient um, to go yeah. that route if that's the only route 
there is, then everyone's willing to do it. But nobody feels great about that. Right. Right. So was the girlfriend, significant other, was she saying again so trying to put words trying to figure out kind of what the motivation was did she think that him going to a long-term rehab situation was was i what she was advocating for i mean was that what she hoped to accomplish you know i don't know that we even got there yet because she had not been she had been in a lot of family conversations but she had not been the lead in those conversations before sort of this moment and so we didn't get her input on those kinds of questions okay. uh, before this. So really, it's just that she, in this moment, is saying, please don't extubate him. Mm-hmm. Leave him on the machines. So we haven't even gotten there yet because we didn't think of her as the main decision maker. And she hadn't voiced those concerns in previous meetings. Mm, interesting. It's also interesting and probably makes it more complicated that she's voicing the concerns that other healthcare providers have voiced in the past. Right. Right. Yeah. In some ways, if she had been the initial person that we contacted or had come to the hospital, probably this would have won the day. Um, right. Because it, it was more concordant with what the initial neurologist was saying. Yeah. All right. So what did you guys do? OK, so I didn't <laughs> do this, but I heard about it later. Okay. Um, a really sort of bold tech by one of the physicians who went into so they had an, a family meeting mm-hmm. during the time that the extubation was so, supposed to happen and the neurologist you know had the document in his hand and he said thank you for bringing this to us um, there has been some concerns about this document by legal and ethics and we're going to need to bring it to their attention and get their input before we do anything okay and um and the goal there was to freak her out, <laughs> okay. to sort of test, to um, test whether or not she would stand by the document if if the concerns were voiced out loud. Right. Okay. And she immediately relented and said, I withdraw decision-making authority. I think that the rest of the family should make the decision. Oh, interesting. So pushing back on whether it's valid, at least just raising the concerns verbally. Um, mm-hmm. She completely backed off of that then. Huh. Interesting. Yep. Which of course led people to think that it was a forged document and that then she worried about getting caught doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But it could also be the case that, you know, that that's, that's one way to, to interpret her actions but another one may, might be to that maybe it was a valid document and she just saw that it was going to be way more um way more difficult to assert her role as a decision maker and she just relented mm-hmm. yeah could be right so we'll never know uh-huh. for sure but it was it was an interesting i don't know that i it wasn't like what i advised to do because i wasn't part of the conversation uh-huh. but it was an interesting outcome of that. And I don't know that it was the wrong thing to do. It may be, like you said, you should question it and maybe saying it out loud. I mean, that could have actually really ruined the relationship with her if she yeah. had pushed hard back, but it it kind of just resolved the situation, just the insinuation that this was something we needed to look more into kind of caused her to back off. Yeah. You kind of called, called her, not her bluff, but called her on it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know that that would be my recommendation either, but I, I, I think not because I don't think it's a an an appropriate an okay thing to do an okay approach. It's just 
like you said, it's bold. And I see that, I don't know, I think that there's a lot of potential downside to taking that approach. Um, mm -hmm. You know, generally when people, you call people on their bluff or on their maybe in untruthfulness, often they don't back down, often they double down, right? Mm -hmm. So right. that would be my concern is that she, that this, this would escalate the situation. It very well could have. I, I also, you know, I don't know, again, I'll never know if this was real or what her motivations were, but if it was fake, she could have gotten in a lot of trouble, right? If this had gone before a judge and it was shown to like, you know, if you could find that PDF on her computer and it was dated, you know, the day that she brought it in, right? That's forging a document could carry some consequences. Yeah, so, it's fraud. <laughs> I yeah. mean, she would yeah. be, yeah. <laughs> So interesting. Wow. Okay. So did, um, and you said it was one of the healthcare team who, who took that tact during the family meeting. Yep. Wow. Did you, did, was that a premeditated, like, this is our plan. We're going to go in and, and kind of push, push back on this. Or do you think it was more of a, I think it was that person's plan, but I don't know that that plan was like shared with everybody. Uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Okay. So, so then what happened? So then they extubated and he died. Died peacefully from his injuries. Yeah. Did she come, yeah. was she, the, the girlfriend, was she around? Did she come back to the hospital? Did she play scarce after that? I, I think they were all there for the extubation. Okay. Yeah. So an interesting case, cause it raises for me a couple of questions. So the first like immediate one was, because I had never seen this before, oh my gosh, are people faking these documents all the time? And we just don't know because it it's not coming to a head in this like really dramatic way. Right. I, and I've never thought about that. It would be so easy. I, I hate to say that in a recording where anyone can listen to it, but it's <laughs> it wouldn't be hard, right, to, to fake a document like this. Yeah. And I wonder if it's happening more than I think. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I want to hope that it's not yeah <laughs> because the the percentage of folks in the in society and our communities that have these advanced directives completed is like what 15 percent, maybe 20 percent, depending on mm -hmm. uh what the how uh, what how you're defining the community so if any percentage of those are Ill illegitimate or inaccurate or forged i mean that that's concerning <laughs> It's concerning. It also then made me think to back to all the times I've like forged my own parents' signature, <laughs> which was never, of course, but you know, never as a once. teenager, have I ever done that? Maybe. Um, so I, that was the first question. Like, how would we ever know what an like, what an interesting question that I I can't I almost have to put out of my mind because I can't be suspicious of all of these documents. Like, I just it would it would derail what we're trying to do, mm -hmm. the good things we're trying to do to always be suspicious. The second question that came up in the course of this case, but still lingers for me is who gets believed in the hospital? Like uh, when people come in, who do we believe? We seem to believe we didn't initially, but we came to believe this grandmother and this sister and what they were telling us. And we were even more suspicious of this girlfriend. So why was that? Like, it, was it because of the decisions they were making? It, was it because of the way they were presenting themselves, the way that we interpreted kind of how they looked or how they presented themselves, the kind of story that they told? 
you know, I think that there's a lot of bias that can enter in here. Yeah. And who we're suspicious of. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I think one thing that I have thought about maybe more, more frequently, more recently is that the way that we, we, including patients and families present ourselves, like you said, there's so much of that that goes into the decision-making like that, that relationship with the family. So uh, we often see this with situations where people have chronic pain and Mm -hmm. as a, as a lay person, or even as a healthcare professional, when somebody says that they are in uh, 10 out of 10 pain, we expect them to be acting and, and almost performing in a certain way that aligns with that description of being in pain. And when there's discord or, there's a, a, a disagreement between the way that somebody is acting and what they're reporting or what they're describing. Uh, we immediately think that they're lying or they're fabricating mm-hmm. or they're embellishing. So, um, right. And, and we know, of course, you and I know that people can be a 10 out of 10 pain and just look pretty placid because they're so mm-hmm. used to it. Um, or that people just express pain differently. I mean, in this case, I was being asked actually pretty specifically to like, when it when the question was are they the appropriate decision makers i felt like it was my job to like suss out whether they loved this patient whether they uh, really uh. cared about it right and that's a that's a tough thing to assess i'm not a mm-hmm. psychologist um they but part of my, my report was they seemed sufficiently invested and their narrative about his life seemed sufficiently informed mm-hmm. and that's a you know you just have to at some point as a clinical ethicist make those kinds of judgments I'm not sure that we're trained well to make those kinds of judgments. Oh, I I am. And the answer oh, okay. is we're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're we're cons- not yeah. trained yeah. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can answer that question almost without without question is that <laughs> no part of my training, except for my experience, like kind of on the job, has prepared me or prepares anybody who goes through kind of graduate level training to be a clinical ethicist to make those types of assessments because at the end of the day, they're almost unknowable. It's like trying to divine somebody's intentions. Um, and then, you know, being, you know, having a philosophy background like you do, I'm sure that you're completely like going into the weeds about, you know, what is love? What is relationship? <laughs> like what are like all of these bigger kind of meta ethics questions about uh, like what, what these relationships entail. Mm-hmm. Well, there, yeah. So that lingers for me. And I don't know that I've ever had anyone address that in a way that I felt like, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And then the last question I, I continue to think about is similar, is um, how much emphasis we as clinical ethicists place on narrative and how insufficient that is to actual people's experiences of relationship. Mm-hmm. By which I mean, you know, this family needed to tell me a good enough story. And I actually, I find myself saying this a lot. So if a family needs is trying to convince me that the person wouldn't want this life-saving treatment. They need to tell me a good enough story about this patient that would convince me that that's the appropriate decision, right? They need to tell me something about his life and what he enjoyed and what he wouldn't have wanted that informs enough about the decision where I feel sort of satisfied that they're making good decision on his behalf. So it's a kind of narrative they need to tell me, but not everyone is a good storyteller. Yeah, you know, in the ways that we need them to be. And so what if they're totally right about what this person would want, but they can't narrate it in a way that's convincing to me or the rest of the medical staff? 
what do I do with that? What do I do with people who just are, you know, narrate in a way that's less easy for me to understand? I mean, that brings up a lot of issues about uh, not not just am I able to tell a good story because that is a that can be really hard. I mean, people are sometimes very good and very not good at telling stories. But also that brings into consideration uh, a lot of cultural uh, mm -hmm. things about how stories are told and how stories are interpreted. But mm -hmm. also, I mean, what if the decision maker, you know, has a, you know, intellectual or learning or communication uh, disability? And mm -hmm. then we are forcing them to do something or perform something or tell us a story that's outside of their ability to do so. But that doesn't mean that they can't, they shouldn't be the person to speak on behalf of this patient. That's complicated. Whew. It's, it's so complicated. And I have not found a lot in the literature about this question. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe because it's too big of a question, but I do think for all the reasons you're saying, like sort of people's ability to communicate that cultural differences between the ways in which stories are narrated and interpreted, you know, what kind of gets highlighted in a story, what gets downplayed. It's almost like I want to teach patients and families how to narrate things to medical teams. And in fact, I have advised like friends and family members who want to stress something, who, you know, are having tension with a medical team, like you need to say it in this way. Right. I'm sure you've done this too. Like yeah. the doctors are going to hear it if you say it like this, because that's what they understand. Right. But that's a real place of privilege to have somebody tell you how to narrate something so that the medical team can hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely have done that, especially with family members. I, I have said, here's what the doctor is going to say or hear something like this. And this is what it means. And this is how you respond to it. Or this is how you can describe what you. Um, yeah. But that is a really, like you said, a privileged position or privileged uh, way to interact with healthcare. Um, so that that's really interesting. I wonder if we could improve the care by helping people tell stories about their loved ones or about themselves. Yeah, I, I, I suspect we could, but that, that's my case. Oh, lovely. What an interesting case. <laughs> Um, we, yeah, good. Uh, so how has this case, uh, stuck with you? Like what, it, has it changed the way that you've approached other cases or what think about clinical ethics? I mean, I think in those ways that I was just describing is, you know, I, it's more like I have these lingering questions that haven't been answered that stick in the back of my mind, but I don't know how to translate them into different mm -hmm. patient care. Um, so if anyone out there has ways in which they think about this that are translatable into practice, I'd love to hear it because yeah. I think they just sort of linger with me. And I've, and that's kind of why I bring this up is uh, I don't know how this should change my practice, even though I suspect it ought to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about the podcast and your wonderful hosts, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. And special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Mm -hmm.